Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's really lovely to see you all, whether you're here in the room or you're watching online. Uh, thanks for joining us today. And thanks so much for having me over the next few weeks. Um, I know you've not all kind of personally taken a, um, a part in inviting me, but thanks for not chucking me out yet. Um, so I'm really looking forward to being with you over the next few weeks. And we're going to be spending um, the next few Sundays in John chapter 17, uh, which is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Gospels. So please do turn to that in the order of service or in your Bibles if you have them with you. Um, so that's John chapter 17, and we'll read that together. When Jesus had, Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. And may God bless to us this, his word. What do you want to do before you die? If you knew you only had 24 hours left to live, what would you want to do? Would you want to go and do something fun and fairly reckless, like go bungee jumping, or hop on the first plane somewhere exotic, or go skydiving, or see the northern lights? Or would you want to go and do something that you would really regret not taking the opportunity to, like finally making up with that family member, or forgiving that person, or telling that someone that you love them? Whatever you would want to do, knowing that your time has come has a way of sharpening the mind and seeing what really matters, what things are the most important that you have the opportunity to do. Of course, I'm delighted to inform you that I am indeed not the Grim Reaper, and I have no idea when the Lord will call you or me home. But in our passage we've just read this afternoon, Jesus knows that in one day he's going to meet his death. And what does Jesus want to do before he dies? Well, Jesus has spent his last few hours with his friends, and the air in the room is heavy. The mood of the room is one of shock and a nervous anticipation of what comes next. Jesus has been with his disciples for three years now as they've left their normal lives behind to follow him. He's just washed the disciples' feet in an act of total humility and given them the news that soon he is going to be betrayed and is leaving the disciples. His hour has come and he's going to go to return to his father via the cross and resurrection and he'll send his spirit to continue his ministry in the world. That's just what Jesus has been explaining to his disciples at the Last Supper in his farewell discourse in chapters 14 to 16 of John. It's fairly easy to imagine just how stunned and upset and confused the disciples would have been. They were shell-shocked as they had followed and devoted themselves to Christ for three whole years, and they couldn't quite get their heads around why he had to leave. Why couldn't things go as they were? Why couldn't they continue? And Jesus knows that. And it's that situation that he's addressing in this prayer. That's the mood of the room. That's what Jesus was speaking into as he lifted his eyes to heaven and began to pray, to speak with his father, knowing that the apostles are listening in, hearing every word. This chapter is often called the high priestly prayer, which is no bad thing. Jesus is our high priest, so everything he does is high priestly, particularly as he intercedes, as he speaks with his Father on our behalf. And this provides a window into the Trinity itself. We get to see what Jesus, in his human nature, speaks about with his heavenly Father. But as he does so, the disciples are always listening in. He's just finished speaking at the Last Supper, and this is a prayer that he wants his disciples to hear. He wants to shape their expectations for what is to come in the near and far future. So what's he doing here? How is Jesus shaping the disciples' expectations for what happens after his death? 
Well, Jesus is praying that the Father will accomplish his work of calling a people to himself, protecting and uniting them all to the glory of the Father. He's about to leave them, which hangs over every word in this prayer, but he's leaving them so that he may be glorified both on the cross and in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. His disciples are to be left in a hostile world which hates Christ and hates his people. So he prays that the Lord would protect them eternally, that despite the troubles they would face, he would keep his disciples faithful to him and bring them to glory with him. And he prays that as the church lives on earth, that they would be united, that they would reflect the theological truth that they are united in Christ and because of that united to one another. Again, Jesus is praying that the Father will accomplish his work of calling a people to himself, protecting and uniting them all to the glory of the Father. Well, let's get stuck into these first five verses that we're looking at this afternoon, which we're going to look at in three sections. So firstly, in verses one and two, we see the glory of the cross. And here we see that as Jesus approaches his death on the cross, his eyes are firmly fixed on bringing glory to his heavenly father as he does so. Jesus' hour had come, verse 1. The hour is a, it's a regular fixture in John's gospel. And up to chapter 12, Jesus repeatedly says that his hour had not come yet, that it's not the time for him to be glorified yet. But from right before the Last Supper and onwards, the hour is here, the hour has come, because it's time for Jesus' glorification. And his glorification points towards his whole act of salvation and exaltation, going from the cross to the resurrection to the crown as he ascends to be with his father. And in these two verses, we see two prayers, two requests, each with a selfless purpose. Jesus' first prayer is that he asks to be glorified. Verse one, glorify your son. Now, we speak a fair bit about glory in the church, but it can be one of those words we use that just goes over our heads after a while. So we should bring in some experts to help us. And in this case, football fans know quite well what glory means. I can only apologize if you're sick of hearing about football, particularly over the past few weeks. And they're not my first point of reference for most points of theology. But football fans might be onto something when they talk about their club or their country getting glory. At Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, they have emblazoned on the side of the pitch for all their players and fans to see, the game is about glory, in big letters, because nothing motivates like a slogan. And the players and fans know what that means. For them to get the glory, they need to play the best football, be recognised as the best team, and win the biggest games, with the fans singing their praises, and the rest of the world recognising just how good they are, even their fiercest rivals would wish their team played like that. They want their team to be established as obviously and undeniably the best team in the world and for everyone to see it. And Jesus is deserving of that kind of glory. If you or I were to ask God to glorify us, then we would just be out of order, wouldn't we? As much as we would love it to be the case, we don't deserve to be praised, we don't deserve to be celebrated, not even on our birthdays, if we're honest. We're unfaithful, we're stiff-necked sinners who repeatedly sin against our Lord and Maker. 
Even the most impressive, bright, clever, strong people you know are weak and broken humans like the rest of us. They're not deserving of glory in the way that Jesus is. And for Christ, it's exactly what he deserves. He deserves to be seen as the righteous Messiah who has conquered death and won a people for himself at the cost of his own life. His glory that he rightly deserves is well earned through his faithful, obedient will to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus' purpose in asking to be glorified is so that the Father is glorified. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, the Father. His is a completely selfless glory. He wishes to bring glory to his heavenly Father so that he's seen as God, recognized for who he is, the Creator, the Redeemer. And Jesus' glory is seen in the hour of glorification. It's seen most clearly in the way in which God saves his people. And Jesus wants his Father to be glorified in that. That's the purpose of his glory, that the Father would be glorified. Because as God acts, he reveals himself. And as he reveals himself, he saves. It's quite striking that when Moses back in Exodus asked to see God's glory, God responds not with a great scene of bright light. He doesn't try to, you know, move a mountain or cause some massive thunderstorm or have a big show of impressive power. But he responds with a statement of how he has saved his people. When God reveals his glory, he doesn't say to Moses, I parted the Red Sea, or I did this, or made the world, or that. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's glory is seen in how he saves, and how he reveals his character in that. One commentator puts it like this. He says that the cross becomes the visible presentation of the redeeming love of God and of his Christ, the superlative manifestation of God's powerful saving action on our behalf. In the anguish of the cross, we see the lens that God will go to for the sake of saving his people. And we see his great glory in that. Christ's basis for asking for the glory is seen in his next request, his next prayer in verse 2. He asks for glory since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this suggests that in eternity past, the Father, in full knowledge of the Son's perfect obedience, has decided to grant him authority to give eternal life. Earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says that he can give life in the same way that the Father does, that he has that gift of life in and of himself. The Father's granted this to Christ based on the foreknowledge of his perfect obedience through his glorification. And the purpose of that authority is so that he may give eternal life to all who believe in him and obey him. That purpose is dependent on Jesus being glorified and being granted authority to give life. It's all dependent on his obedient will to the will of the Father. If he were disobedient, then he would not have had the authority to grant life to us, and his sacrifice would have been unacceptable to the Father. 
And the purpose in Jesus' prayer is always looking out. He wants to be glorified so that his Father in heaven is glorified. And he wants to have this authority so that he may give eternal life to all who believe in him. And now the world we live in doesn't really look at the cross and think glory, does it? It looks at the cross and comes away with a whole range of reactions. They think it's weak, it's unnecessary, it's the sign of a failed Messiah, or any other number of things. Some within the church even say worse, that the cross is an act of cosmic child abuse, that it's barbaric. Or they go another way and just reduce it to being an act of love, meant to inspire a more loving nature among people. But let's remember that as we look at the cross of Jesus, we see nothing less than the glory of the Lord in action. We see God reveal his nature to us in his act of salvation. It's not a low point, but it's the highest point of human history so far. As God's glory is seen in his son taking on the form of a servant and obediently following his father's will to the point of death. If you want to know what God is like, look at the cross and you'll see his saving glory. Well, Jesus' glory is seen in how he has bought eternal life for those who trust in him. But how are people going to see that glory for themselves? That leads us on to verse 3, where we see the knowledge of the eternal one. And in this verse, we see that trusting in Jesus' sacrifice brings us into relationship with the eternal God, giving us eternal life. Follow along verse 3 with me. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Before we get into what this means, it's worth saying that this isn't just a random explanation of what eternal life is. Jesus isn't just giving us the dictionary definition of eternal life because it's helpful to have, although it is a perfect explanation of what eternal life is. Verse 3 isn't just a dictionary definition, but what is Jesus doing with it? Well, Jesus is showing how he makes God's glory visible to his people. Because we are by nature children of wrath, children of the devil. We are those who love the darkness. And to see God's glory, we need Christ to open our eyes to himself. We need him to bring us into relationship with the Father so that we may see, appreciate, and worship his glory. Jesus is showing us how his glorification and the glorification of his Father lands in the real life of believers. Now we'll see two things about this life that Jesus speaks of, that it's both relational and restricted. So firstly, eternal life is relational. Very simply, knowing God brings eternal life. To know God personally brings transformation to a person and introduces him to eternal life that he could not otherwise have. I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, it's all about who you know. I'm sure you've all heard that somewhere or experienced it or heard a bit of rank nepotism in the workplace at some point. You know the situation, there's a colleague who's completely underqualified, terrible at their job, wildly incompetent, rude to the rest of the staff, is well known as, as lazy, and even turned up to the office drunk and trouserless on one occasion. But they never get fired. 
because they just happen to share a last name with the boss. And they might just even happen to be the boss's son. So they coast along without the fear of being punished because the boss is too enamored with his wee boy to ever think that he could be bad at his job. And that understandably makes us angry because the person isn't being punished as you think they deserve to be. But in the Bible, it really is all about who you know. Because any kind of meritocracy would leave us unable to stand in judgment, deserving of death. It's only because of Christ's perfect obedience that we can be thought of as righteous in the eyes of the Lord. We're miserable sinners who repeatedly fail the Lord again and again, who grumble against our brothers and sisters, who fail to give him the glory he deserves. Yet we know the Father. We're in relationship with him and are united to his Son. So he sees us as being righteous in his eyes. And that's a beautiful reversal of the fall. Often when we think of the fall of Genesis 3, we mourn that death has entered the world, that pain is present every single day, and it feels like we have to fight against the world for work and food and everything. And we're right to do that. Those are awful things that God didn't design the world to be like. But the worst thing that happened on that day was the relationship between God and man was broken. That is the disease, and everything else is just a symptom of it. Knowing God and knowing him intimately is the first fruits of the reversal of the fall, as man and God are reunited, brought together in union through Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all working as one to bring your salvation into effect by bringing you into a relationship with God. And secondly, eternal life is restricted. The way in which people receive eternal life is by coming to know God the Father through the Spirit uniting us to his Son. That's the only way, and it's something that Jesus said earlier in the same evening, probably just half an hour beforehand. In chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation is exclusively found in Christ. And it's one example of how everything we see in this prayer, in this whole chapter even, draws on what Jesus has already shared with his disciples that evening in chapters 14 to 16. Because of his obedience, he is the one with authority to give eternal life. So of course it's only through him that salvation comes. Knowledge of God is eternal life. To know God is to have eternal life. And that only comes through Jesus. Our world wants to disagree with that too. Claims that salvation are only found in one person in the person of the Lord Jesus. Those claims are hated in a pluralist society. But we have to be willing to bite the bullet on that and to stand firm and tell our neighbours that their religion is false. Submitting to Allah and following Muhammad's will doesn't bring you into relationship with God the Father. Being a generally good person doesn't bring you into relationship with the Father. Going to church at Christmas doesn't bring you into relationship with the Father. Just believing that there's a God of some sort doesn't bring you into relationship with the Father. Only through Christ may we know him. And that's offensive in the culture we live in, but it must be said. For without it, people are facing judgment without a leg to stand on. Without Jesus pleading their case, 
based on what he's already done, on his perfect obedience. The only way we may see God's glory and be in everlasting union with him is through the Holy Spirit uniting us to his Son and trusting in Jesus' name. That's the only way we'll see and share in God's glory in the new creation. That's true for us, that's true for our neighbours, our colleagues, for everyone. So we need to stand firm on that. And finally and briefly, in verses 4 and 5, we see the glory of the crown. And here Jesus is looking forward to his glorification, as it will return him to what he already has been, what he always has been, the eternal word, word dwelling with the Father in glory forever. Cast your eyes over verse 4 with me. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is speaking before the cross, knowing that his obedience is such a, a sure and certain thing that he can speak of it as already being done. God the Father sent his son to live as a man for this time and to die on the cross as the payment for sins so that we might know him and receive eternal life in his name. And Jesus did that. He took on flesh. He lived among us. He ate, he drank, he got tired, he slept, he grew in strength, he grew in wisdom, he cried, he spoke, he had friends, he consoled them, he encouraged them, he did all these things. The eternal world of the Father took on all of this. He became a normal human, a baby even, so that the Father would be glorified. Often we as Christians like to think that Jesus' sole motivation in coming to earth and going to the cross was love for us. And he did love us a great deal. He does. He still loves us more than any other person could. And we rejoice in that. But this passage makes clear and helps us to see that his priority in doing so was to bring glory to the Father. His primary motivation for doing everything that he did, for obediently submitting himself to a human frame and all its weaknesses and limitations, and submitting himself to death and a cross, was so that God would be glorified. And as he glorifies God, his love for us is made known. Look at verse 5 again. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus wants to return to his former glory. I wouldn't mind returning to my former glory myself. Um, I've recently been forced to accept that I am officially past my peak and my glory days are long gone, although to be honest, I don't think they were ever all that glorious to start with. But Jesus prays that he would return to where he belongs as the eternal word dwelling with the Father. That's the end of his hour of glorification. It starts as Jesus humbly and obediently approached the cross and ends with him ascended in glory, sitting at the right hand of the Father, with him being seen to be what he is, the one deserving of all the glory and all the praise. And it's on this basis, the basis that Jesus is seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father, that he can go on to say everything else he does in this prayer. It's because he is the glorified son with authority to give life that he may keep and care for and unite his church to himself. We're going to see that over the next couple of weeks. And the context helps us see just how selfless Jesus is in this, in this pursuit of his own glory. 
He's just an hour or two before got down on his hands and knees to wash his disciples' grubby feet. And he was approaching a brutal death, obediently submitting to the will of the Father for the good of others. And when he asks to be taken to glory, well, he's asking for what was already his in eternity, to be returned to where he belongs. So as we close, how should this section of Christ's prayer impact us today? He's praying for himself, so what can we learn from him praying for himself as he approaches his own death? Well, we can learn, firstly, that even in the most unlikely situation, God will be glorified. The disciples had just heard this prayer for glory of Jesus, and they very quickly lost faith that he was going to deliver on it. They scattered and deserted him and denied him as soon as the world was hostile to them. They lost all faith that he would deliver on his own promise to rise from the dead in glory. But we can take comfort that despite those circumstances, we know very well that God was indeed glorified. Jesus died on the cross and the disciples abandoned him, but God was faithful to his plan of calling out a people for himself. And he was glorified through it all. That's a comfort to us as we live in a world which is so anti-gospel and in which the church seems to be losing more battles than it wins. When I'm reading the news, I don't come away from it particularly encouraged by the big strides that I think the church and the gospel's making in Scotland are further afield. I tend to read more of churches giving up on the gospel so they can be liked by the world, caving into the pressure to conform to the world they live in, speaking far more about keeping safe from COVID than finding salvation in Jesus. Doesn't look quite glorious, does it? But we can trust that God will be glorified through all of it. Because Jesus is right now ascended, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, receiving all glory and praise in heaven. And that's only going to increase. Because we know that one day he's going to return as judge and saviour to make all things new. And then everyone even his most fierce enemies, will see how righteous, how mighty, and how worthy of praise he is forever. That's what we're living for, the world to come, when Christ is reigning on earth with his people in glory. But Christ's prayer is a great challenge to us too. Our greatest priority must be to see Christ glorified. It's to be evident in our prayers just like Jesus, and in our lives also. So it leads, to, leads me to ask you one question. What are you doing with your life? You might not be approaching your end soon, but it is coming. It's unavoidable. And what do you want to do before you die? It's so easy for us to become stagnant as Christians, isn't it? I find that anyway to lose focus in our service, in our prayer life, in loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, in standing as a witness to the light in a world that loves the darkness. So when you get up in the morning, what are the first things that you think about, you know, after you've washed your face and made your coffee and your brain starts to function? What are you thinking about? What are you doing with your day? What are you trying to achieve? 
Are you parenting for the glory of God? Are you working for the glory of God? Are you praying for the glory of God? Is your marriage for the glory of God? Are your friendships for the glory of God? Is your spare time for the glory of God? As Jesus approached his own death, he was laser focused on what was most important, the glory of his heavenly father. And let's pray for and encourage one another that we'll all keep on looking to God's glory and seek to live for that in our day-to-day lives. If we all do that, then here in this church, we'll be reflecting the beautiful, selfless love and priorities of our Savior, who we are in relationship with, because he gave up all his glory in service of another. Are you living for God's glory? Let's pray together as we close. Our Father God, we praise you that your Son, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Please, Father, conform us to his likeness so that we may live not for this world, but for the glorious one to come. Help us to bring you glory in our church, in our families, in our communities, in every part of our lives. And we know that in our own strength, our prayer should not be heard by you, that we cannot stand in your presence because of our sin and guilt which is why we ask all these things in the name of our great and gracious Saviour, Jesus. Amen.